Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Throughout the season of Easter, the church intentionally abides in a garden full of hope and possibility, wondering what might grow up here and what good can be done now. With these important Easter questions in mind, we find ourselves at the end of an Easter sermon series that has explored the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and this morning, uh, the book of Acts. Through the lens of these various books, it's been our hope to more fully appreciate Jesus' life into which he invites every person. Four weeks ago, we considered the Gospel of Matthew's focus on an epic King Jesus and his revolutionary kingdom. Three weeks ago, we considered Mark's suffering servant who reveals suffering and death as part of a universal pattern that gives way to new life. Two weeks ago, we considered the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus is cast as the Son of God, the human one, who encourages ongoing hope in the possibility that every person can grow and transform. And last week, we considered the new creation, the garden, on the eighth day into which Jesus invites us to live and to cultivate life in this world. This morning, we'll conclude our sermon series looking at the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts basically picks up where the Gospel of Luke concludes, and there's just a little bit of overlap to get us going. Here's what I mean. Luke ends with Jesus ascending to heaven. And so from Luke chapter 24, the last three verses in the book read, Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. And then there's Acts, most likely written by the same person who wrote Luke, which also mentions Jesus' ascension. From Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. While Jesus had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so you see Acts picks up where Luke leaves off. Except there's one important difference to take note of. Just before Jesus' ascension in Acts, there are some very important words which give shape to the entire book. From chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Following these verses, the ascension, which we already read, when he had said this as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And so, according to Jesus, only God knows when the kingdom of Israel will be restored to its fullness. More importantly, though, Jesus seems to say, is that the disciples will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and when they're filled with the Spirit, they will become his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Got it? Acts chapter 2. In Jerusalem. That's important. In Jerusalem, we witness Pentecost in which the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus' disciples who begin speaking in tongues. And so you see in the book of Acts, a sign that the Holy Spirit has entered into a person is that that person begins to speak in tongues. Tongues is a sign that the Holy Spirit has entered into and resides within people. And in chapter 2, it becomes clear that the Holy Spirit is in the disciples who are Jews. And so the Holy Spirit is in Jews in Jerusalem. But what about Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? Acts chapter 4. Peter is in Judea where he shares about Jesus and we read these words in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Here we see the Holy Spirit in Judea, inside embodying Judeans. But what about Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Well, Acts chapter 8. Philip goes to Samaria, where he shares about Jesus, and many Samaritans, half-Jews, many Samaritans believe. Ah, oh, but they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. They, they're not yet speaking in tongues. And so, the apostles decide to send Peter, on whom Jesus said he will build the church. Verse 14 of chapter 8 reads, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so you see here, we now observe the Holy Spirit in Samaritans, in Samaria. But what about the ends of the earth? Well, two brief stories. Story number one. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, had a dream in which he was told to call Peter to his home. And after Peter had his own dream, which I'll talk about in just a moment, Peter goes to Cornelius' home shares about Jesus, and then we read these words beginning in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, 
Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. You see here, we begin to get a glimpse of the Holy Spirit moving and breathing and embodying people to the very ends of the earth. That's story number one. Now for for story number two, enter a side stage left. We have Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. He takes the baton from Peter and in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, he shares about Jesus and we are told that his listeners are filled with the Holy Spirit. And proceeding to Acts chapter 28, the very end of the book, Paul is in Rome, and we read these final words beginning in verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. Except, you see, it's not the end. Because as Acts progresses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to Rome, you get the sense that this Jesus story and this Jesus following will over time extend throughout the entire world. And this brings me to colonialism. Because of the divine dream in the book of Acts, in which the story of Jesus and the way of Jesus are to extend ever outward, to the very ends of the earth. The church has a terrifying history, a horrifying history of brutality, violence, and tribalism in which Jesus has been forced into the lives of people throughout the world. In a book titled A Small Place by Jamaica Kincaid, a native of Antigua, Kincaid addresses the impact of British colonialism on her life. Uh, Here's an excerpt. I cannot tell you how angry it makes me to hear people from North America tell me how much they love England, how beautiful England is with its traditions. All they see is some frumpy, wrinkled-up person passing by in a carriage waving at a crowd. But what I see is the millions of people, of whom I am just one, made orphans. No motherland, no fatherland. No gods, no mounds of earth for holy ground, no excess of love which might lead to the things that an excess of love sometimes brings, and worst and most painful of all, no tongue. For isn't it odd that the only language I have in which to speak of this crime is the language of the criminal who committed the crime? And so here we've come full circle. From a divine dream in which the story of Jesus and the way of Jesus are to extend ever outward to the ends of the earth, which is marked by tongues, to becoming over time a Roman tongue, an English tongue, an American tongue, an evangelical tongue, in which you either learn to speak fluently or else, always or else. When I was in late grade school, uh, maybe early junior high, my neighbor friend across the street, Adam, was in a difficult spot. 
his parents were getting divorced and his mom was moving in with her quote unquote new friend who lived just a couple doors up the street. And to this day, I can remember Adam being so sad, usually so verbose and happy and effervescent and, and lighthearted, had become so quiet, so morose, clearly upset. And talking about it with my mom, we decided to have Adam come over to stay the night. And shortly before Adam arrived, my mom said to me, hey, Mike, Mike, Adam, as you know, is very sad. Maybe you should tell him about Jesus. <laughs> oh, man, talk, talk about pressure. It sat on my shoulders like a bag of bricks. Late into the night, we talked, and at times, Adam even laughed. Until just before dozing off to sleep, I mustered all of my courage and all of my strength, and I said, Adam, Jesus died for your sins, and if you trust in him, you'll go to heaven instead of hell. Awkward terribly awkward silence, my heart beating like crazy, horrifyingly embarrassed, but wonderfully relieved, I felt. We eventually fell asleep. And that makes me want to ask, is that it? Is that it? Is that what this is all about? Is the gospel of Jesus extending out to the ends of the earth? Is it colonialism? in which motherlands and fatherlands and holy lands are decimated in the name of Jesus? Is the gospel of Jesus extending out to the ends of the earth evangelism that causes a 12-year-old to tell another 12-year-old who's in terrible pain due to his parents divorcing that he's in danger of going to a place called hell? Does the revolutionary king of Matthew and the suffering servant of Mark and the human one of Luke and the gardener of John come down to this? Tragically, all too often, yes. All the while we, not they, but, but we, Jesus followers, are the ones who have lost sight of Jesus. This is a primary aspect of Acts that gets lost. Throughout the book, when the Holy Spirit is seen to reside in the other, whether that be a Samaritan or a centurion or an Ethiopian, the followers of Jesus are shocked. Shocked to see through tongues, not singular tongue, but plural, always plural, tongues. Followers of Jesus are shocked to see the divine in others. And this is a deeply religious problem. It's a problem created by a gospel co-opted by empire, which insists our land, our story, our tongue, or else. That, you see, is not the gospel. It is not the way of Jesus. And it is not good news. Here's what I mean about colonialism. In Acts chapter 10, the Gentile Cornelius has a dream in which he's supposed to invite the Jewish Peter to tell him about the way of Jesus. And this is ironic because Peter has yet to realize that the way of Jesus includes Gentiles. And so, before receiving his invitation, Peter has a dream. Upon a terrace, hungry and waiting for lunch, Peter falls asleep. While sleeping, he sees heaven open and a large sheet, like a picnic blanket, descends down from heaven. And on the blanket are all kinds of unclean foods. 
such as four-footed animals and reptiles and birds. And Peter is told by the divine voice, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Now, Peter, being a good Jew, says, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And so, Peter has the exact dream again. But being the stubborn Peter, Peter that we all know him to be, he, he still doesn't listen, and so he has the exact dream again. Three times Peter has this dream. And then he wakes up. He's immediately met by messengers who tell him that a Gentile named Cornelius is inviting him over to his house. Peter goes to Cornelius' house and upon entering states these revolutionary religious words. You are all aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any person impure or unclean. God has shown me that I should not call any person impure or unclean. I'd like to read these important words again. God has shown me that I should not call any person impure or unclean. You see, the message of Jesus is not colonialism. That is to say, it is not the political or religious practice of acquiring control over others. Perhaps instead, a better word for us to use is humanism. Humanism an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to humans. Wow, Mike, what are you saying? Well, let's briefly move beyond colonialism to the nature of evangelism. What is the good news of Jesus? Is it an, a road called Romans that simply gets us away from this reality into some other kind of reality? I mean, according to Peter and Paul and many of their messages in Acts, part of the good news of Jesus is forgiveness. You are forgiven. And throughout the book of Acts, the good news is also belonging. The Holy Spirit fills every person despite race and geography. You, whoever you are, you, you belong in the family of God. And then, of course, let us not forget Jesus' most articulate expression of the gospel in Luke chapter 4, when he enters into the synagogue, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and declares the gospel, literally the good news. Freedom from bondage, healing for the sick, release for the oppressed, and the proclamation of God's favor on everyone and on everything. Of course, this is something more than mere humanism. Because these words attach divine care to human need. But we cannot deny the deep humanity of Jesus' gospel. Freedom from bondage, healing for the sick, release for the oppressed, and the proclamation of God's favor on everyone and everything. This is Jesus' good news. And it must. It must unequivocally shape the soul of whatever evangelism in Jesus' name becomes. It's evangelism grounded in the belief that no one is impure or unclean. It's evangelism grounded in the belief that every person belongs at the picnic blanket, around the common table. And as we accept one another, 
and as we feast on food and life together. Do you know what begins to happen? It's a very human, a very divine result. As we come to forgive ourselves and one another, as we come to accept ourselves and one another, as we feast on food and life together, sharing stories and moments together, we, we grow more fervent and unceasing in declaring and demanding the very heart of God in this world. Freedom, healing, release, and favor on every person until every person is swept up into the love and belonging of God. Not through the violence of colonialism, and not through the nepotism of evangelism, but through a message and a way of being that is honestly, truly, and pervasively good. And because of its very goodness, because of the gospel's very goodness, the gospel is not dead, but very much alive. Appealing, appealing again and again and again to every person in need of forgiveness and belonging and freedom and healing and release and favor. Until that day when no person is in need any longer. May it be so. And let us pray. Loving God, inspire our love. Inclusive God, nurture every person's belonging. And good God, may your goodness be reflected in our life together. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, Will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Mm